what do you think I like we should do for like actually drawing attention to the fact that this is episode 100? Should I just say something like just a little blurb about it? Or do you want to spend a little bit at the beginning of the episode talking about it? Or do you have anything to say about it? I think we should try to say 100 as many times as we possibly can until we're tired of it. Like that meow sketch in Super Troopers. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. Kyle Perkins here. I'm Jordan. And before we get started, you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. If you would like to help us out with hosting costs, you can do so at, at patreon.com slash alienfamiliarmedia. And because if you like our content and you would like us to continue, any help you would be able to give us would be greatly appreciated. And thank you for joining us this time uh, for episode 100 of our podcast. We've been uh, talking about, we've been trying to come up with a 100th episode topic for several weeks now. And um, we've, over the course of these 100 episodes, we've talked a lot about Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. But over the course of those 100 episodes, we've never actually given our opinion of the game system itself, whether we think it's complete garbage or whether we enjoy it. Um, hopefully, the fact that we've talked about it so much means that we enjoy it some. But um, this episode, we are going to be talking about our thoughts on D&D 5th Edition. About time, eh? I've got thoughts. Yeah. Where do you want to start, Clayton? I think I'll just start off by saying that, personally, 5th Edition is my favorite edition of D&D. I feel like it's a very solid, well-made system that does very well the things that it is designed to do. And the thing that it is designed to do is high adventure, um, being big damn heroes, and busting down doors, uh, getting into fights with horrible monsters, and uh, coming through at the end of the day, and uh, winning treasure, and... Uh, the adoration of the NPCs in the world in which you are playing. That seems to be the sweet spot for what D&D is designed to do and for what it actually does. I think that's a very fair assessment. I've played far more 5th edition games than any other edition of D&D, and, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until this moment when you just said that, but, you know, I, I guess it might be my favorite too. I certainly know it better now, than I ever pretended to know 3.5, which was my most played system, uh, never ran as a DM, but my most played system prior to 5th edition. Oh, when did you learn 5th edition? So how many how many sessions was the Wanderers, Clayton? 30-something, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> At this point, I don't even remember. Let's say session 25. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I, I guess I mostly agree with you, Clayton. Um, I just feel like it's a little bit undercooked. That's that's kind of my overall take on 5th edition. I agree that for the most bare-bones elevator pitch of what Dungeons & Dragons is, yeah, it checks all the boxes. But there's another part in there that is 
always kind of part and parcel with D&D, and we just brought it up, and that is a long-term play, you know, the campaigns that span months and months, and it's there that I think that uh, 5e starts kind of coming loose at the seams after you've jangled it around for, for that long. I'll go into it more why I think that later, but I think it's pretty purpose-built in my mind to be closer to like a like a board game or like a party game, something like that, um, than a, a game with enough enough detail and enough like robust systems and uh, I'm not articulating this well. Anyway, we'll we'll get into this more later. Before we go any further, um, I have gotten, um, I reached out to uh, our hosts who are haven't been able to join us of late, and um, I want to go ahead and add uh, KD's um, take on D&D 5th edition. Um, I'll go ahead and insert that here, and then after that is completed, we'll come back to the rest of us and we'll talk uh, kind of about some of KD's points and also kind of go off on uh, our own points. Kyle, thank you for joining us. It's great hearing from you, Katie. Howdy, y'all. It's uh, KD here. Long time no listen, I suppose, or having been heard. Uh, happy 100th podcast episode to Alien Familiar, and uh, I hope y'all have been enjoying the things Clayton has been cooking up. I'm just dropping by to give you a little bit of my thoughts on 5th edition D&D. And honestly, I would have to say... Despite having been very, very familiar with 3.5, that was the game that initially got me into D&D. Uh, my girlfriend, my then-girlfriend, and I played it in high school uh, with some friends at the time. I feel like 5th edition is sort of a, in my opinion, an, a sort of natural evolution of where things were going. I didn't play too much 4th, so in my mind, I, there might be, you know, that might be the missing uh, gene link so to speak, but I, I really feel like they took the game and the clunkier parts of it and, and really just did try to streamline it. Um, I like, for example, that you can basically play any race you want with any class. Uh, I know in 3.5 there was a lot of certain advantageous matchups, you know, just off the top of my head, Half-Orc and Barbarian being one. Um, and humans obviously still have that well-rounded versatility to them that makes them good in, in any capacity. But I, I do think that they really just made it a lot easier for people to pick up, and I know that that's given it sort of a reputation online of quote-unquote catering to casuals. But in my opinion, the more people in the hobby, the better. And if you have a, a system that works well and can be easily picked up by other people, then that's that's good. And that's not to say that there's not rules in 5th edition. I mean, there's plenty of fucking rules in 5th edition. But I do feel like in terms of kind of combat and sort of how you generate a character, that's been a lot more simplified. And, and I think even more so, too, especially in character generation. Like, I think that's where the boundary for fun is for a lot of people. It's A lot of people have a lot of fun making a character. You know, there's some fun executing that character, but I, I think for a lot of people, there's just something about having that period of character generation time and that excitement and that idea of raw potential. And I feel like 5th edition definitely helps you get that. It definitely helps you visualize what you want to do. And in addition to that, too, it, it, multi-classing 
is pretty easy. Uh, I didn't multi-class a whole lot in 3.5, but I've done it multiple times in the 5th edition games I'm in um, and, and have been in. Uh, I know I did a cleric, warlock, monk hybrid in a 50 game that, that has since wrapped up that Clayton and KP and Jordan were in. And I'm currently in a 5e game <coughs> Excuse me. that is... I'm doing a uh, sort of homebrewed spell blade. I'm a warrior or a fighter and a uh, sorcerer hybrid. And both of those have gone super well. And I've never really been confused about multi-classing, which I guess ties into, again, I really feel like it has such a succinct character building component. In terms of cons for me, I do definitely miss how skills used to be handled. I, I really miss feeling like you could really express a character's strategy and what they're good at through how many skill points they could distribute and not having access to that does feel a bit bad sometimes. I know that proficiency has sort of changed the way skills work in this game and there's definitely a lot less of, you know, oh boy, I have plus eight to climb or something similar to that. And that simplification that I talked about earlier did trickle down into skills and then maybe that's where I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it personally. But I do feel like a lot of the changes that were made were good. And I, I, you know, I know plenty of people that really just are new to the hobby and have gotten their start in 5th edition. And I think that that's great. And I think that, I think that that more so than anything else is a sign of success rather than, you know, the longevity of the system or how, you know, quote unquote, hardcore nerds feel about it. So that's where I stand with it. I think that it being a gateway for people into more systems is definitely a good thing. So that's about all I have for my review. I just touched on a couple things, but uh, I'll still play a human and love every second of it because I'm boring. And I hope that you all enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right. So that's what that's, those are Katie's thoughts on D and D fifth edition. How do you guys feel about that? Um, particularly the points about um, him saying that, the online consensus being that it seems to be catering to casuals. How do you guys feel about that? Well, I know that KD himself doesn't feel that way, uh, but I I think there is a an air of casualness about the game. Jordan, it's funny, you called it undercooked. I think I'd call it overcooked. Something like an Applebee's hamburger meant to appeal to the broadest audience and the broadest palates, but when you overcook a hamburger and slather it with ketchup and mayonnaise, you're missing the intrinsic tastiness of the beef. That's really all I have to say about that, uh, <laughs> but I think the analogy holds. I, I think it, it wears it pretty obviously as an addition that it was designed by committee with a whole lot of focus group testing and and all that like it was very much a you know a corporate effort to try to recover a brand that had largely been damaged by fourth edition i mean like okay wizards of the coast they they buy up D&D um out of the rubble of TSR and then put out third edition and so they put out a version in third edition where they're trying to, you know, sort of prove themselves to the old guard TSR second edition crowd. Right. Then after a few years, um, they, I think, start seeing players, uh, getting essentially wandering off to go play, 
uh, World of Warcraft and things like that. So then you see fourth edition that is obviously designed to try to draw those players back in. It's got like all of the trappings of that that mode of play, and some people like that. And then I think that the the whole goal of fifth edition was to get a much bigger piece of the nerd pie than D and D had ever gone after before. And you know, all their all their design decisions are geared towards that. You know, the getting away from uh, stacked modifiers and making it a simple advantage-disadvantage system. Um, you know, focusing a whole lot more on, like, how inventive and cool your character concept is and, you know, really putting a lot of the, the mechanical game kind of in the, in the backseat, in my opinion. I, I think it's probably the friendliest edition of D&D, and, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, but it's, it's definitely sacrificed a lot of the elements that made me fall in love with the hobby when I was a kid who was way into all the little finicky bits of the system. Not to say that they're not there, it's just the system's clearly not designed for players like me anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, I read um, a basically a, um, a summary from one of the designers of 5th edition, they, and they said that the, the one of the philosophies of it behind 5th edition was having... Um, rulings be more important than the rules so right there you've got an admission from the designers that um the the game isn't going to be this comprehensive set of rules it's it's designed to be this thing where a gm doesn't have all of the answers in a book they're going to have to make calls at the table and um there's also statements from the um from the developers that they um well and this plays out in the numbers that they tried to make this as um they did try to make this the a mass appeal product and since the launch of fifth edition fifth edition has been far and away the best-selling edition of dungeons and dragons and we've had a level of pop culture penetration of of dnd fifth edition that we haven't seen before since there was a cartoon on saturday mornings about dnd uh, we're getting car commercials you know like we're, we're we're getting mainline shows uh on aired on on mainstream television doing dnd episodes in a bottle so to speak um there's a reason it's the world's greatest role-playing game and i say that with no sarcasm frankly uh it it has superseded anything it's it's kleenex um it's not just facial tissues (laughs) i I was thinking about that phenomenon um when i was preparing for this episode and i'm not sure how much of that um they deserve the credit that they deserve for that um from the game design um some of it yeah they've definitely you know made the barrier for entry much lower than before, but they weren't doing that in a vacuum. Um, over, over the course of, you know, the last 10, 15 years, whatever culture has entirely moved into nerdy stuff, you know, the MCU and like, you name it, like if it's pop culture, it's nerd shit. It's stuff that back in the nineties was super niche. Um, so it, and it's it's got that um 
it's got that appeal hearkening back to, you know, nerdy people's childhoods that, you know, that the whole retro thing is, is a big chunk of it. So I don't know. I mean, there's, there's some element of this that I think was right place, right time. Should I just keep rambling, Clayton? Uh, I was just trying to come up with a response. Um, yeah, I um, definitely um, just having mainstream, like very popular, well-recognized actors who are saying, yeah, I play D&D on in interviews that they are doing, like um, Vin Diesel saying his character Riddick is based on a drow character he used to play. Um, Stephen Colbert having uh, like talking about D&D on his um, on um Colbert rapport and then on um uh what show is his like late night or something with Stephen Colbert that that isn't D&D trying to reach out to new people that are is um people who played it in the past admitting yeah I I've played this game it is still awesome um and letting a, a whole new generation of people knowing about it and I feel like with fifth edition the designers kind of had that in mind because they're there was the start of having that there, and I feel like they just capitalized on that. And they did, in fact, they rode that wave in such a way that um, that it they got us they got it to where it is now, where it is bigger than ever before. Right, and you've also got YouTube and uh, and also you know D and D Beyond and Roll Twenty and all these other things that uh, make it much more accessible. You know, people can go online and see, you know, what Matt Mercer is doing and kind of get an idea of what it's like instead of just showing up to somebody's basement and sit in awkward silence while they figure out what role playing is. Um, And they don't have to buy a mountain of books and, you know, thumb through it for an hour. They can just download some shit on their phone and find it in five seconds. So a lot of the old barriers are, are gone now. And I... Again, I don't know how much of this <clears throat> you can really use as praise for the design of 5th edition as such, so much as the right time. And also, Wizards has marketed this edition of D&D better than they ever have any previous editions. A lot of it has to do with those celebrities. I just saw on, uh, on Jeremy Crawford's uh, Twitter account not long ago, they had this big, like, you know, celebrity D&D event or whatever um, with, you know, guys from like Silicon Valley and whatever. Um, so, yeah, they're they're using that uh, as these celebrities as they find them because um, they know that's that's drawing people in. That's it's a smart move. Um, I don't know if that's an argument for why advantage is a good system. Are you saying advantage isn't a good system? I'm saying advantage is a trash system. Why is that? Well, Here's the thing. Um, for one, uh, it doesn't stack in any way. That's that's probably my biggest complaint with it. Um, if I've got two things giving me advantage and one thing giving me disadvantage, I'm the same as if nothing was ever affecting me. And that's also true if I've got 15 things giving me disadvantage and one thing giving me advantage. I'm back to just neutral again. That doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to have any kind of, you know, simulation of an actual physical state of things and in any way acknowledging that, you know, these different factors can make you better or worse at whatever you're attempting, 
it makes no sense to say that, well, then no matter how much is for you and how much is against you, if there is a factor or one or more factors on both sides, it all negates. That's absurd. And the way that it plays out in game is even more frustrating because it robs you of any opportunity to really tactically approach a situation beyond just that first advantage state. And so you you don't have any reason to continue thinking about the situation. You don't have, you know, you don't have to hatch some cool plan where you've got all your different pieces in place and then you execute at the moment of, you know, maximum advantage. There's no such thing. And so I just think it's a really dumbed down system that, you know, it's it it's boring. But it's a godsend for GMs who um, are trying to keep the flow of a combat going as quickly as possible. And they're sitting there. They no longer have to sit there and haggle with the player over what modifiers are in play on this particular maneuver that the player character is trying to do while the DM is looking at the player who is sitting right next to them, who is sitting there rolling their eyes because this haggling is taking so long to figure out how many pluses are going into this next roll. And then two characters later, whenever you come to the character who's new to the game, they're given the same number of of, of bonuses. And so they're sitting there trying to count sometimes in their head, sometimes literally on their fingers, how many bonuses they have and add that to the number that they just rolled on their dice. I love it because it it just wipes all of that away. I've never heard this system described as as rulings over rules, but you saying that at the beginning of this episode, like I'm sitting here with mathematical calculations and formula flying across my face invisibly as I recalculate my opinion of D&D on the spot, 5th edition specifically, obviously. And it's, in in that regard, uh, in that light, so Jordan has five things giving him advantage, his character, and one thing giving him disadvantage. By the rules, sure. I, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that as written, that cancels out into neither advantage nor disadvantage. But doesn't that give the DM the license based on the the theme of the, 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 the core design principle, one of them, of 5th edition, to have the GM sort of house rule that or make a ruling that you have overwhelming advantage so that that still applies? Can Can we... Can we assume that they were expecting something like that to happen? No, because they explicitly put it in the rules that advantage and disadvantage negate each other under all circumstances. Like, they didn't have to write that in there, but they did. And that's stupid. I mean, if I was going to fix that system and still keep it as it is and not get into the the math jungle that you're worried about, Clayton, I would say something like, uh, if you have multiple sources of advantage... Only one of them is going to apply to a given role, but the rest of them are sort of padding if there are other things working against you, and vice versa for disadvantage and really bad situations that, you know, okay, I've got three advantage and two disadvantage. Well, chop two off both sides, and then I'm still up one advantage. And you never have like, you know, 5d20 that you're rolling, but you'd still have some reward for, you know, thinking and through 
what you're trying to do and putting everything in play to work for you as best as you can. But even that sounds like you're still you're still counting bonuses. You're still counting. Okay, do I have do I have two advantages to negate this one potential mm-hmm. disadvantage? Mm-hmm. I don't think the basic addition and subtraction should be, you know, something that's frowned upon. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember having conversations with teachers in school about that being one of the cool things about D&D, that it improves your math skills. And if you're so bad at basic arithmetic that you can't do some addition and subtraction on the fly, you should probably spend some time to do that. It'll pay dividends throughout your life, I promise. Is that too asshole-ish about pluses and minuses? <laughs> well, the thing about the 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 design feature behind advantages and disadvantages are there's only so many prescribed ways in which you can get it. Usually the disadvantage is, well, either advantage or disadvantage is a feature of one of your classes, or if you're a, um, a spellcaster, maybe it's from a spell. That's the vast majority of the sources of advantage and disadvantage, um, excluding lighting conditions. Um, so usually you are try- just trying to, it, it becomes another um, resource that you are managing, re- managing your, your class abilities, because usually those are, um, those are some, those have some sort of economy to them. Whether you're a, um, a spellcaster who ha- casts a spell that has advantage or disadvantage as a, um, a, um, a, an effect of the spell, or whether you are a, um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's some sort of, there are some rogue abilities that allow you to, um, use it and attack with advantage in certain situations. Um, I feel like they, I feel like they've used the advantage disadvantage in tandem with this um, action economy in order to basically buff it up for for being a really simple, elegant system where you're not only doing doing the roles, but you're also managing some of your resources whenever you're using these abilities. Numerically, as far as, you know, if you listed what are the sources of advantage or disadvantage in the entirety of the D&D system, um, then yeah, the spells and class features and things are going to be the majority of of those. Um, but I, I think that uh, there's, it's worth mentioning that when you're actually playing and uh, dealing with the the situation on the ground, you know, things like lighting and things like, um, things like flanking. I know that's a optional rule or whatever, but, um, different stuff like that can come into play. And also it's, it's one of those things that I, I read it as being an, an open invitation to appeal, um, to the DM, like, Hey, I'm doing this extra cool thing over here. Maybe give me advantage on this. Huh? And, you know, that's a thing that they could uh, offer you if you come up with something particularly clever. Um, I, I don't think it's, I mean, like like we said before, the rulings over rules, I don't think it's necessarily a closed box that's supposed to be just the finite list that's given in the pages um, that can grant that. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll completely concede that uh, the third edition and fourth edition uh, went way overboard on 
the amount of, of math that was involved. I get that it can slow the game down and all that kind of stuff, but I think there's probably a happy medium that they overshot into simplicity. And being a, a tactically minded player, I just find myself extremely bored turn after turn. Like I'm just sitting here rolling dice, waiting for these numbers to fall right so that we can be done with this whole thing. Especially when you get to the point in the combat when all those resources you're talking about have been spent and you're just down to that fucking basic attack slog until it's over. You know what I mean? Like that is the worst. That's the least fun I ever have in D&D. Those last like four or five rounds of combat that just won't end. Yeah, I've I've basically got my notes written in three different sections, uh, talking about the philosophy behind D&D, the rules of D&D, and the nitpicks of D&D. And that is absolutely one of my nitpicks, is that there's, there isn't a, a, um, there isn't rules as written for ending a combat besides just utterly defeating your other, your opponents. And like exactly what you're saying, there, whenever you're the GM and you've done a number of combats, you can see that tipping point. You see exactly when the players hit that tipping point and the, the combat is no longer, um, the, the results of the combat are no longer in question. You know how it's going to go down and it just becomes a slog to reach that point. And one of my nitpicks for the, for fifth edition is that, and this has been a nitpick for every edition of D and D is they still don't have good rules or good advice on how to end that. Um, even in the dungeon master's guide, there's really not a whole lot in there on how to manage ending a combat fun because they almost always end with okay did i hit with this attack no okay next person did i hit with this attack yes okay did you do enough damage to take him down no okay well we got it he's down to one hit point next person roll every single time there's a combat i i feel like there is a point where it becomes that yeah, and I I think that's because players have so few, one of the reasons is because players have so few options to do really cool things. You know, like think about how that might resolve in like a TV show, a fantasy TV show fight. You know, somebody might sneak up behind someone and put a knife to their throat and, oh shit, okay, this guy's definitely going to be able to kill his hostage. So let's all stop and talk about this now. But the way D&D works, there's no fucking way to do anything like that. And so you're just down to knocking off hit points every single fucking round. It makes me realize how much I hate the D20 as a core principle of Dungeons and Dragons. I hate how often rolls from 1 to 8 are just useless. That's 40% of your potential rolls. Useless. Yeah, there's so much fail in a roll 20. Like, and and that's another reason why I I push so much for being able to stack up bonuses and things like that, like turns where you're just whiffing and there's not even like a, an interesting side effect to the fail. It's just miss. OK, next. Wait 15 minutes for your turn to come around again. God, shoot me in the face. <laughs> well, hopefully by the time you reach that point in the combat, everybody is out of the interesting things they could then do. And so it won't be more than just a few minutes for it to come back around. Yeah, I I don't understand why um, they've made 
the design decision with, especially with some of the martial classes. Um, like right now, I'm thinking primarily of Battlemaster. It doesn't make any sense that if I'm some trained swordsman who knows how to, you know, parry and uh, disarm and all these cool things, that I can only do it like three times. And then I just can't anymore. Why? I can keep fighting. I'll be fighting three hours from now because I can't do anything interesting to stop it. So it's not about endurance. So what the fuck? What am I empty on? I see it more as your enemies are getting wise to your tactics. That, why? I could use it against a completely different enemy and still have the same amount of resources. You, you know what I mean? Like if, if I have three maneuver rolls or superiority, die, whatever it's called, do it against two guys, wind up killing them, go in another room, fight a guy who's never seen me before. I still only got one left. You know, it's it's not about them learning about me. It's about me running out of something. And damned if I know what that is. <laughs> this is this is one of the um, one of the things that I picked up. I, I reread through large chunks of the player handbook in preparation for this. And um, one of the things that I noticed that, that sticks out like a sore thumb is it seems like in writing, they tended to err on the side of can't more often than not. You know, it's if I compare the stuff that I could do as a player character in fifth edition to the kind of stuff that I could pull off in prior editions. Every single rule that I look at seems like it's nerfed in some way. Is that, do you guys get that feeling at all? Or is that just me? Like from spells to combat rules to class features, like you name it. Can you elaborate on what you mean by nerfed compared to what and when? Okay, so um, here's an example that is outside of combat. Um, social spells. Back in the day... You could charm person, you could do all kinds of cool stuff to, you know, be tricksy with your with your spells in third edition or whatever. Um, now, every single social spell is garbage. They find out immediately that you're fucking with them. That sucks. Like, I, I never use social spells in fifth edition. It doesn't make any fucking sense to do it. They're, they're trash. Um it does seem like they pop off a lot less from what I've noticed. That's interesting. It seems like social spells pop off successfully uh, far less frequently. I have noticed that. Well, another thing is that there are so few spells, it seems, um, or effects, period, um, that do anything even if the the target... Uh, let, me, let me reverse the way that I'm saying this. It seems like most stuff is just save or suck and and that goes into like a, a whole complaint that i have about the way that they've done magic where it it feels like more like superpowers than anything magical going on and the concentration system is a whole bunch of shit that i hate to to start with but um you really only got two kinds of spells you've got like a point and click you know, fire and forget thing that they'll save or they won't, or you'll hit or you won't. And with damn few exceptions, it, that's just going to be what it is. And then the other things are, okay, I've got my one concentration spell that I've got up and going, and that's the only one of those I can do. So that's 
half of the spells that are no longer accessible to you, um, no matter what level you are. Like that's that's the way that I'd try to fix that. Is you know every five levels or something, let somebody have another concentration spell that they can maintain. That way you could have a really fucking awesome wizard that's got like, you know, all these different things going simultaneously and he's just a real fucking avatar freaking out kind of madman. Like, that's cool. Um, as it is, it's like everything's everything's on like easy mode. Everything's on like, uh, you know, low key mode. So you're saying you want you want your wizard to be able to both fly and be invisible at the same time? Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And have a fucking globe of invulnerability. If I'm a goddamn 20th level wizard, I should be godlike. For things like that, yes, I agree. But when it comes to um, character, whenever it comes to imposing those um, penalties on the enemies that you are fighting, from the game master's perspective, that's a nightmare to keep track of. Um, that's probably the biggest takeaway from 4th edition that they got from all of the shit that you could pile on top of character on top of enemies and you have to constantly keep track of what is currently in effect um it's a nightmare for the dm to keep track of just on one enemy if you got multiple enemies and some of them are under this effect and some of them are under that effect uh i never found a good way to keep track of it well, the way that 5th edition's done it is that they just have an entirely different game system that all the NPCs and monsters are working off of counter to the player characters. Like, even humans. You look in the monster manual at, you know, a leveled, you know, pirate or soldier or whatever, it's a monster stat block. And, you know, there's there's nothing that behaves like a player character that is under DM control. And... That's that's a little part of annoyance for me, too, is that there's stuff that some of those NPCs can do that no player character can ever acquire, no matter what, you know, uh, career path or feat or whatever that they choose to take. I'm going down my, my list of stuff that I made here that I mentioned. So what are your, your opinions on just whenever they are releasing content for 5th edition, the, uh, the way they've avoided putting out so many splat books as what they've done in fourth, third, second edition, where in those editions, especially in second edition, you literally had multiple books coming out each month on for as being different splat books that you could you could purchase. Whereas now with fifth edition, there's maybe um, two or three books who that are published a year, and usually one of those is a big adventure. Um, I feel like they've done a pretty decent job as far as balancing the amount of material that comes out for a particular or for a particular class so that no one class is getting much more love than any of the others. But on the other hand, most of the splat books that are coming out, um, well, I, I, I hesitate to even call them splat books. Um, most of the books that are coming out, they are not for players they're usually for game masters because they're either monsters they're adventures or we've had a couple of other things like um, xanathar's guide which had some um, player stuff in it but was still mostly for gms um, it's it's nice from the dm's perspective because you don't have as much stuff to keep track of for what the player characters can do 
but from a player's perspective, it it does kind of get a little stale, um, knowing that you've got the three options that are in the player's handbook, and then you've got three additional optional options in Xanathar's Guide, and then maybe a couple of other options that are um, from on the website that uh, released in on our in unarmed unearthed arcana um i don't know sometimes i feel like there needs to be more options for the players but then when i think about their game philosophy the game design philosophy of making it accessible for people keeping it limited is is really good for people who who don't play this game as much as i do and that's the vast majority of players who play or the people who play a game a week and they maybe only own the player's handbook i don't see how having more options for players who are deeper into it would make the game prohibitive in any way to more casual players i mean you've you've got you know a pretty good pile of options i guess um in the core book for casual players um and i guess like what you're saying does exist as far as the Unearthed Arcana, um, you know, kind of playtest material. It's not official books, but, um, you know, there's stuff out there that they kind of suggest that you could throw in. We just never play with any of that stuff. Um, like Xanathar's was the biggest expansion that's come out since the, the player handbook. It's been really the only one to speak of. Uh, Volo's had a bunch of monster races, but, um, as far as like classes, that's it. And I mean, personally, there's there's only a handful of things that I would ever reach for in Xanathar's Guide. Like the the fighter didn't get shit out of Xanathar's Guide, and I mean that's that's a class that I feel like has been shit on like more than most in um, in fifth edition. But I guess going to a, a thing that Jeremy Crawford said in an interview that I watched. Um, it really gave me some insight on how he thinks about stuff. He was It was a two-part YouTube video about creating your own subclasses. And he talked about the whole process of uh, how they make these things. And they're largely like copy-pasting old stuff from other classes and just slightly reskinning it. Um, he, he always starts with, whatever the the narrative niche is of that particular archetype you're trying to portray. And then the rules are kind of like the secondary part. And that that seems to go all through his design. But he said something that really uh, struck me. He said, if you see a uh, game mechanic and you think, huh, that's interesting, be suspicious of it. That's fucking lame. <laughs> I just got to say it. I think it's lame. When I was running Combat and Wanderers and I tried to introduce a bunch of stuff that I thought was really interesting from homebrew content, literally after every session, you two would come to me and be like, where the fuck did you get that monster? Oh, that's not an official release. Like, it it was interesting how quickly you would detect when it wasn't something from Wizards. I feel like I was the one who said that more often than Jordan did, like said the, the like, that's not an official release. Yeah, that that doesn't sound like me at all. But there's, yeah, I mean that is that is absolutely something that I say often. Um, but yeah, after you've after you've seen after you've looked through the monster manual, 
you definitely see the patterns. You definitely see what what they're designing the system to be, and you get a good feel for just being able to spot it when well that's outside. Yeah. And I feel like and I feel like that's that I mean that's a that's a detriment of the system that that it's that predictable. From a player perspective, it results in a lot of very samey characters. Like it's super easy. It it happened in your game, Clayton, for you know, four or five people to get together and make characters independently of each other, and then when you show up, it turns out there's a shitload of toe stepping going on. Just because the the differences between things in the player handbook are largely just whatever sticker they decided to put on the mechanic, but you know, they they tried to they tried to stop that toe stepping phenomenon by limiting players' options in the kinds of characters they could make, I think. Like that's why you've got very shoehorned um, you know, prescribed paths in each of the classes. Um at least that's my perception of it. But they it seems like pretty lazy design in my opinion, and especially when you factor in the whole proficiency bonus system in lieu of actually distributing skill points, like you're, you're going to wind up with cookie cutter characters like over and over again. And, you know, when you try to multi-class and spice it up a little bit, even that doesn't work that great. Cause a lot of times um, the, the class features are redundant and built to not stack with each other. So you'll have like whole class features that are like, you know, you get proficiency in this skill and that skill if you don't have it already. Well, what if I do have it already? Go fuck yourself. Sweet. Thanks. <laughs> you know? Along the same lines, um, I didn't intend to do this, but um, I'm in, I'm a player in two different games right now. Uh, in one game, I'm playing a, an archer ranger, and in the other game, I'm playing a warlock. And it occurred to me, the most recent game I was playing in, that mechanically, I can't really tell the difference between these two two characters, <laughs> despite the despite the fact that they are completely they're supposed to be completely different classes. Um, I'm using these these ranged attacks. I have a couple of go to spells that are whenever you read the books. Yes, these these are the spells you want because they are far and above the best uh, abilities for you to have at this level. And I'm playing in, and I'm. I'm shooting my Eldritch Blast, and I'm casting Hex on my enemies so that I can deal extra damage. And then the next time I play in, in another game, I'm playing my Ranger, and I'm using my uh, my Longbow, and I'm casting Hunter's Mark so that I can deal extra damage whenever I hit this particular enemy. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to dig through long arcane lists of, well, arcane items in order to make your character interesting. I am someone who does not have the patience to dig through all of this shit to kit out my character. I never have, and I never will. And as a result, I'm becoming bored out of my skull. I'm in two 5th edition games, and the games themselves and the people running them, well, there's this Clayton guy, he's kind of a shithead, but uh, for the most part, the games themselves and the people in them are what keep me in the games. The plot's interesting, I'm liking it in both of them, but I'm playing a ranger and a rogue, and there's just nothing. There's nothing for me. It feels so mundane. It really does. I I don't know. I, I, I feel like there should be enough interest in the character 
and in things to look forward to in the future, even at lower levels, which we are, I shouldn't have to go dig through random lists of magic items to make my character interesting. Dude, this is this is the price that we pay for this simplistic design, and I I think that they buy into this old fucking dichotomy that I absolutely and totally reject, and that is this old split between narrativist and simulationist gaming. Um, I, I think it's horseshit because I'm telling a story through the mechanics of this game. It's it's the only Lego blocks that you have to represent it in an objective way that others can interact with that's not just like, well, I think it ought to be blah, blah, blah. No, here's here's our, our virtual objective reality that we're playing on. It's the terrain of the game system. And when you represent it in such low resolution as what happens in games like fifth edition that are trying to be elegant. And I get that trying to be fast and approachable. I get that. Um, what you wind up with though, is this like really mushy, uncustomizable, you know, bland experience. And there's, there's no mechanically meaningful way to express the things that are unique about your character outside of the, the rote, class abilities that they've decided this is what a cleric looks like this is what a druid looks like blah 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 um you know the the whole thing feels very rehearsed at this point for a lot of this episode i've been trying to come up to counters for a lot of what you've both been saying um it's no secret at this point that uh, mechanics and especially talking about them in this setting it's not my forte uh I kind of feel like a dude at a party who's about 12 Bud Lights in and everyone else is like sipping on sherry and like <laughs> weird, you know, f- fucking alcohol with like small little critters that have been fermented in it. And some dudes brought over his like homemade beer that he made in his basement. And I'm just like, hey, dudes, I got some more Bud Lights here and no one wants them. But that aside, uh, before you go any further, um, point of fact I am drinking alcohol that I made myself. I'm drinking <laughs> mead right now. I should be drinking. I'm not. Well, my point is that there's a lot of wonderful... There is a culture, and there is a lot of wonderful, fantastical visions that can come from D&D. And I've seen it with the middle schoolers I run games for, with my friends with most people who find D&D 5th edition to be their go-to I can't wait to play another D&D 5th edition game it's because Dungeons and Dragons as a world as a concept as a collective hallucination it's great and we know that but this conversation more and more is kind of making me realize that if you can and it's difficult if you can put aside all of these things that we already know is good about Dungeons and Dragons as a series of games and as a universe and as a phenomenon and look at the mechanics. Well, I, I'm having trouble coming up with uh, countering points to a lot of what's being said. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think a lot of the affection for 5th edition is is really just affection for Dungeons and Dragons as, as a brand as such. I, I think that 
if you slapped some, you know, no name fantasy nonsense onto it and tried to tried to release it, it would flop. It's it's a lot of goodwill from the community um, that keeps it going. And also, I wonder for for a lot of these new players that are really having a great time. I'm sure they are. I mean, I remember having a great time when I started. Um, but I wonder if they would necessarily have a shitty time if they played something a little bit more complex after this, you know, like there's, there's nothing beyond, um, just the entry level stuff that D and D 5e offers. Um, that was another thing Crawford was talking about is that, uh, the game for one thing doesn't really start until third level and it's sort of intended to end by like 10th like the high level stuff they they never really even intended for people to play except for like random one shots to see what it's like to run around as a 15th level character for a session or two um so you know it it's lazy i think the design of this well they did a survey and like whenever they were designing uh fifth edition and one of the results of that survey was that like something like 98 or 99 percent of players never played above level 10 yeah just because just because either the games didn't last that long or um whenever they did play at level 10 or above level 10 they started at that level so i wonder why they don't try to make a game that is compelling at every level rather than just saying hell with it will make the bottom half of the levels the only ones that anyone cares about and the top half are just there to finish it out because traditionally you go to 20th level. Like that that seems like a, a thing that they identified that they should have put some work on and not just been like throwing their hands up and said hell with it. Well, the sweet spot for D&D has all, is and, all, and pretty much always has been like basically like level 4 or 5 up until like level 10 or 11. And whenever I run a game, I am pushing it to reach like level seven or eight before I am, I am burnt out on whatever setting I'm running. And I am just itching to play something new. I want to play something different. I have, I've had so many other cool ideas that I have had over the months that we've been playing this, this current game. And I just want to play these other, these other settings and since I'm the game master, I can decide whenever the campaign is over and it's time to move on to something else. That's, that's in my experience, why my games don't last. It's not anything mechanical. It's, I just lose interest. We also decide what the pace is. You decide how fast we level. You know, if you just decided um, for your Eberron game, for instance, that at the end of every session, you level up, we'd be like, what 11th 12th level by now you know we'd be seeing parts of the game that i've never seen in fifth edition um and like that's that's kind of the tragedy there for me is that there's there's this whole experience of being those top tier characters that you know we can just travel the plains and get involved with fucking demons and dragons and crazy shit you know all the stuff that's like advertised as being the cool shit that you're supposed to have run-ins with in D&D, but you're actually just going to be slogging away at, you know, fucking orcs or whatever for however many weeks until you get tired of that. You know what I mean? 
Like, let's play Spelljammer as, like, 18th level characters. That'd be fucking sick. You know, something that you see right from level one, and it's always there, no matter how high you play, and it's always garbage, is the damn proficiency bonus. It's it's something that's, like, haunting you no matter where you're at. And I hate it. I hate the proficiency bonus as a concept. I hate the way it's implemented in this game. Why is there some, like, semi-hidden modifier that improves as the character levels up in addition to the other elements that improve as you move towards interesting levels and interesting abilities and content? Why is it, like, arcane knowledge to know when to add the proficiency bonus and when not to add it? Like, I understand experienced players, to them it's second nature, but teaching middle schoolers to play D&D, for instance, has taught me that, like, they understand skills and usually attributes, but the proficiency bonus is just this little lurking goblin that occasionally gives you a bonus to things and never feels part of you intrinsically like skills and attributes do, and like spells eventually do for spellcasting classes. That is one thing that uh, I feel like they did right of shit on D&D this whole time, but one thing I want to throw in there that I'm really happy that they did do is that for a lot of spells, they tied it to uh, your level or gave you the ability to upcast with a higher slot. That's a fucking good design decision. That's, you know, make my magic missile still relevant when I'm, you know, 11th, 12th level, whatever. That's that's good work. But yeah, I see what you're saying, Kyle, about the, the um, proficiency bonus. I, I think if they're going to have something like that, it... It should be separate from all the other shit. It should be just by virtue of your level, you're getting better at everything. And so you add your proficiency bonus to every single thing, so you're never going to whiff on a goblin again. And then also have some discretionary skill points to throw around to personalize your character. Um, I, I think that'd be cool. Like The proficiency bonus could serve an interesting mathematical function um, just to pad out a lot of that empty space in the d20 that we were talking about before you know what i mean absolutely what do you think about the proficiency bonus clayton i haven't heard from you in a while well a lot of what jordan said um it's i see why it's a it's something that only goes up at certain prescribed times and it really doesn't go very high because in especially in fourth edition um that the proficiency bonus went up every other level and it caused i see why they they did it this way is so that even a level 1 goblin or even a goblin you would have faced at level 1 still has more than just a natural rolling a natural 20 and getting a critical hit chance of hitting a um, most characters no matter what their level so it's kind of to help make sure that even low level monsters can do something to you. But on the flip side to that, um, even high-level monsters don't have that great of a, a, a two-hit. And once your characters get to probably about level four or five, you're probably at your max armor class. The only way your armor class is really going to go up is it might go up a couple of points from getting additional magical items, or you might gain another... Um, another special ability that increases it to some degree. But it's really, your armor class is going to be pretty much set around level four or five. 
And I'm, I'm not sure whether I, th- I think that's a really good thing or it's a really bad thing. One thing that I think that I would house rule, um, if I ever ran a 5e game, um, I would do something about hit points and the, the death save system, because I think it's just, this game's way too survivable and it, it makes it uninteresting. Um, having three shots to make a 50, 50 roll, that's ridiculous. You, you're nearly guaranteeing that, uh, that you're going to survive anytime that you get dropped. And, with everything having so many hit points, including <clears throat> including the player characters, it drags out combats well into the zone where it's no longer fun, like we were talking about. So I'd, I'd probably do something like you get a very low static number of hit points um, each level. Like, you know, if you're a, a wizard, you get one. If you're a rogue, you get two. Like, something like that. Um, and keep keep those ridiculously high hit points down because the weapon damage doesn't really go up you know the weapon damage is pretty damn stable and so you're you're not making the combat any more exciting really um especially for the martial classes um so i don't know that's just a thought i had do you guys have any thoughts about that yeah i've thought a lot about doing something similar to that um Conversely, like I agree that probably after level three or four, it becomes incredibly hard to kill player characters. But level one and level two, man, it is so easy to kill player characters. Um, I'm playing a pretty, uh, a pretty, uh, I don't know, I guess deadly uh, game on Thursdays, and um, part of that is the fact that I made the player characters or that made the characters. Um, made the players roll their stats straight down the line uh 46 no rearranging you 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 first roll your strength and then you roll your decks and then you roll your con and then after your stats are rolled you just figure out what kind of character you can make from that so holy shit i haven't heard about anybody doing that in years so we like most of the characters now are level three um, either they just reach level three or they've been level three before the previous ex- adventure and it's kind of leveling out, but we've played like 10 sessions and I've had like maybe, um, maybe eight PC deaths in the game so far. Wow. So are you, are, are you coup de growing these down characters? Cause I, I find it hard to believe that they're all failing their death saves that consistently so i could see how that'd be easy to knock them all out but is someone going around cutting throats after this is over no this is just really crappy rolls um on the player characters faults uh, are on their um high damage rules yeah um i'm i'm consistently rolling critical hits against them while they're incredibly low and at levels one and level two a critical hit whenever you're at one hit points is very likely to take you to um, take you all the way dead, straight up, full stop. So that's happened a couple of times, um, and that's and even like with with as swinging as combats can be at level one and level two, where most creatures that you that that are in the uh, monster manual, even CR one fourth, um, if they get a crit, they're going to deal them enough damage to be your maximum hit point so you're going down so 
I've had a lot of instances where the um, the tank gets a critical hit, gets critically hit the first round of combat and goes down. And the the group is scrambling to get them back up and keep them up because I just happened to roll three crits right in a row. And I'm using <laughs> I'm doing this on roll twenty. All of my rolls are um, are open for the players to see, and they're just horrified as they watch these natural 20s just come out of the random number generator. <laughs> um, so one of the ways that I would, I would probably fix that if I were to, if I were to take your suggestion, Jordan, and just have like higher levels, give a flat hit points and be a relatively low number. I would start like at level one, start at a little higher. Um, in fourth yeah. edition, you got your constitution score added to your hit points i loved that system and i would i think i would do something like that because it fixes the problem of not having enough hit points at level one and two and then once you get higher just having an ungodly number of hit points that takes forever to slog through at higher levels so i would kind of mix and match those where you you have your con is based is straight up part of your hit points and then higher levels you don't get as many hit points Yep, I like that a lot. Oh, one more uh, precious few bit of praise for 5th edition I would offer is I'm really glad we don't have to confirm crits anymore. I think that's a good design decision. Hell yes. Oh, I have an unrelated point of 5e praise, but I can hold it if you wanted to elaborate on that more. No, I was going to start something about inspiration. Uh, Well, briefly, um, so I like personality traits, ideal bonds, and flaws. They're kind of cool brainstorming lists, you know, a table to roll on, making a character. But um, more importantly, I love backgrounds. I think they add very interesting little elements to character creation and um, kind of gives you what feels like three things that I find myself falling back on quite a bit in early levels of the game. Um, and uh, I also really like tool proficiencies. I, I think they were handled pretty elegantly that again you know separate from proficiency bonuses but like tool proficiencies and using that tool proficiency with an attribute you know for for a role um i think it's pretty cool i i also like but good i was going to sing its praises as well i i love backgrounds and in fifth edition um, i like how it's another thing besides race where it's something that you have at the very beginning to kind of give your character a little bit more flavor. I wish they had gone a little bit further with backgrounds. I wish they were a little bit more beefier. I wish they give, gave you, I mean, I would go as far as to say that I wish the backgrounds gave you more than what your race did. Um, as it is right now, backgrounds are about the only source of um, tool proficiency. Another thing you mentioned, I love the idea of tool proficiency, but I hate the fact that I am stuck with a tool that, well, sometimes I get a tool or two with my background and maybe with one with my class. And in game, in the rules, I have to spend like 200 days training in order to gain a new tool proficiency. I feel like that's another wasted opportunity. I wish that backgrounds came with more tools and tools that you could select. Um, I love that you get a couple of tools, but I really want to be able to do that customization for my character and just make, well, Jordan, you've said 
Um, customization is an area you wish there was more of. Yeah, I feel like this is somewhere that you that it wouldn't be hard to make backgrounds beefy enough that you could really make your character stand out from every other fighter that is walking around besides just, oh, I um, I was a soldier, and so I have proficiency in um, land vehicles. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And uh, the customization stuff, especially as far as like the skills and things like that. And every time I'm making a character and I'm picking my character skills and I look at that super limited list of skills, I always think like how arbitrary and petty, like they've already funneled me into only being able to assign, you know, trained or untrained to, to these skills. And then they're going to prohibit me completely from taking other skills. Like a fighter can't take stealth. What the fuck? How is this guy even still alive? You know, like I hate shit like that. Yeah. More, more skill selection please. And I love the tool proficiencies as well, but could they please have spent maybe, I don't know, like 20 minutes working out a reasonable crafting system? Like if, if you don't have a, a good mechanic in place for how people are supposed to make all the different things that they might want to make, you're cutting out like one out of four players who are going to sooner or later want to make something. You're just going to pretty much tell them no, or it's you know, prohibitively expensive or time consuming or otherwise difficult. So go back to clobber and goblins. Yeah. One, like kind of bouncing off of that one area that I feel like they potentially could have been really cool. And they did put some thought into was the background activities that you can do between adventures. I love what is in there. And it's one of those things where I wish there was more and Apparently the game designers did too, because there's a huge um, section of Xanathar's Guide that expands on the background activities. But even that, I feel like, man, that that's that's a really good start. Yeah, I love the ideas. I love the categories of things that they've listed that are interesting little mini games of downtime activity. But when you actually, again, the system, when you actually dig into what numerically has to happen for various effects for a player character, nine times out of ten, you're better off not doing any of that shit. And I I just get so fucking frustrated looking at that list because, like you, Clayton, I see so much potential there, but the execution is just botched, in my opinion. And that was a design decision to kind of make, like... It goes into the the, the, the the design decision to make the game try to be modular where you can just drop things in and take things out. Um, I really like that, but I feel like they didn't go far enough as to to show you kind of under the hood how you go about doing that. Um, like backgrounds. You look at a f- you look at five or six backgrounds and you can see the formula there of how to create a background. Um, I, I, I don't remember if it's stated in the player's handbook or in the dungeon master's guide, just how you go about creating a background. It's incredibly simple, but most of the modular things, most of the things that they've designed for you to be able to take it, uh, put in and take out, they really haven't gone into the explanation as to how exactly you do that. Yeah. For a game that, that is relying so much on the DM improvising. 
yeah, there is very little explicit, you know, instructions in how to how to add to this game in a coherent way, and I think it suffers for it. Holy crap! Go ahead. I feel like the the resources for the they they put a lot of resources in there for the game master, but. I don't think that the resources that are in there help the game master to really understand the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they don't spend much time explaining their design decisions. And that's that's something I've been wanting to see since I first picked up this game. Is like, can I just have you know the manifesto that uh, you know Crawford and Merles were going by when they we're making these decisions because in the places where it is coherent, you can kind of suss out that there is this design philosophy, but it's always this thing that you have to, you know, just kind of like figure out by pattern recognition rather than it, you know, being very explicit in many places. Um, but going to going along with like these weird systems for DMS and stuff. I'd love to hear what the two of you guys have to say being, the only two here that have actually run the damn game. Um, could you tell me about your experience with the experience system? Kyle, I'll let you go first. My experience with the experience system? Yes. What are your thoughts on the experience system? Uh, I've never used it as a GM, and I never will. And as a player, I find it to be about as enjoyable as doing my taxes. <laughs> This is another area where they drop their drop the ball from learning from the mistakes of fourth edition. Um, the The fact that there are supplemental rules in the dungeon master's guide for just ignoring experience points or using experience points, but just giving player characters okay, this is the number of experience points you get for your characters each day that they are out adventuring. Um, I feel like. It's just a, a bunch of unnecessary math on the dan- on the gun- dungeon master's part. Whenever you've got so much other stuff you need to prep, um, I don't want to go through and add together um, the fact that okay, I've got um, well, as an example, my uh, my Thursday night game, I've got um, two or I've got three players who are uh, level three, and I've got one player who is level two. Therefore, I have to uh, take. This amount of experience points, multiply it by three, then take this this amount of experience points and add it to that. That's my budget for this encounter, for it to be an easy or medium or hard encounter, and try to figure out how um, how to balance out the the encounter based on the experience points, so that the player characters can reach their um, their next level in so many prescribed encounters. <laughs> It becomes a, a it, it's like doing my taxes. I, I, and I don't like doing my taxes. <laughs> yeah, it looks terrible. And I mean, I've, I've read it. Uh, I've read what they have to say about it in the books. I've never actually had to, to do my fucking taxes, but it looks like a goddamn nightmare. And I, every new edition is an opportunity for them to like really fix some problems. And Experience has always been a fucking problem. Like, we've been playing D&D as a society for fucking 40 years, and we can't figure out a better way of doing this yet? Like, you gotta be kidding me. And there are other games 
that have worked it out in other ways. I think that's, I don't know. I don't want to come off as like a, a salty traditionalist because I think there's a lot of new shit that's outside of the box that they could have done to really fix some of the legacy design problems with this game. I wish the milestone system had been the default leveling system in fifth edition rather than clinging to um clinging to experience Mm -hmm. makes a lot more sense can we talk about inspiration a little bit i feel like this is one of those spots where they tried to reach for something that they've seen in newer generation games and tried to implement it in fifth edition but uh i'm unimpressed with how it worked out how do you guys feel about inspiration do you find it inspiring? I think it's, um, it's, I feel like they, like they carried, um, an idea over from other games that have done it much better. And they tried to put it into a, the D20 system. And this is what we got. And most of the time, it's something that is forgotten. I can tell you, I can count on one hand in the last, uh, three months where, uh, Players have remembered inspiration, or I have remembered inspiration. And I'm a part of four games right now. It's just another spot on the character sheet that people forget whether or not there's anything there, and people forget whether uh, forget to like mention that this is something that they can either gain or then use. Um, most of the time, I I don't even I couldn't tell you whether or not. Um, my characters have inspiration or not. Um, and most of the time I, in, in a clutch situation, I, I'm usually not thinking about it. I'm thinking about other things. I'm trying to f- come up with some, something in the situation in order to, uh, to gain that advantage rather than, oh yeah, I've got this, uh, spot on my character sheet that says I can just do advantage whenever I want. And half the time you don't even need it because if there's any other factors at play, it's irrelevant. But to be perfectly honest, I like I've played a lot of other games that use something similar to Inspiration. Savage Worlds has Benny's um, Fate System has Fate Points. Um, I can't remember what the name of the one in uh, Dungeon World is, but in those systems, I still forget. I, I it's just a it's just the way this type of a game feature works is that I forget about it most of the time. Jordan, even in Apocalyptia with luck points, I forget about those most of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I I really like having some kind of clutch resource that I can draw on when there's something that's happening that I really, really want to succeed at beyond just whatever the the random shit is that my class features give me, but something that everybody has access to. I love binnies. Obviously, I like luck points and all that kind of shit. Um, I think that's it's cool to give characters that specific moment of, if it's not a guarantee, um, at least a much better chance of asserting agency on the path of the story. And I think that um, to fix inspiration, for one, I think there should be more than just one of them at a given time. That's a lot of the reason why it's so forgettable. Um, you know, we've got spell slots, we've got superiority dice, we got key points and sorcery points and whatever. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, bins of bonus whatever that players are managing. This one, I think, is pretty forgettable because it's just a binary. Um, you have it or you don't. But 
if you had it, if you have multiples, and if they came back every session or, or every day or something like that, so that you're constantly reminded to keep up with them, or maybe you get one every day or whatever the system is, something to make you interact with it more. Um, and if it was better than just advantage, you know, if it was, if it worked more like luck where you've got an actual extra D20 that you're throwing in there, um, I mean, hell with it. Just make them fucking luck points. Like, get rid of inspiration. Act like everybody has the luck feat. That's the system that I think it ought to be. And I, I do like what they're reaching for, for, you know, let me justify uh, why I should get another one because it has to do with my background or whatever. I, I think they're probably borrowing from how World of Darkness worked with... Uh, willpower points on that kind of stuff. I like that system. I just think that they just really kind of squeaked out a little turd on this actual follow-through on the idea. There's nothing more disheartening than having a point of inspiration, spending it, and on your first roll, you rolled like a four, and you spend inspiration, and then you roll like a six, and you're mm -hmm. just, well, there goes everything I want to do for the next turn to five turns <laughs> yeah would it really yeah but rules is written you got to declare the spin the expenditure of experience or inspiration before you start rolling god throw that out the window oh, dude fuck, i don't even play that, that way rule. to the point that i forgot that was as written wow that's awful i forgot all yeah. about that Ugh. would it really be that game breaking if it was just a success if you just gave players you know one or two or three or whatever successes a session you're, you're still going to be rolling damage dice. You're, it's not like you're handing out crits. And if it's a skill, then they're probably just trying to forward the story along in some way. Like, who's who's going to lose it if somebody can just throw out a couple of successes when they really need it? Seems like that's one of those holdovers from the old school, crunchy, difficult days. You know, that experience, proficiency bonus, and its arcane usage... Like, there's a few little things in there that don't seem to fit with their design philosophy. Rulings over rules. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the new generation narrative games have full-on mechanics where, like, here's the next story point, and I'm declaring that because it's my turn as a player. Um, shit, what was that, uh, what was that, like, Coen Brothers type of game that we played, Clayton, that's like a murder mystery kind of thing? Fiasco fiasco yeah that's all that game system is and nobody's losing their mind about that you know but it's like they were kind of wanting to entice the you know theater kids that would be into that sort of thing but they just didn't they didn't get the best of it i don't like that it's a resource that the game master gives the players um if i jordan i like your idea of either making it something you have at the beginning of each session or um, there is something that is done that you automatically get it because Game Master has enough things on in their minds going through trying to keep track of everything to just add one more thing that the players more often than not forget about as well. That said, I still ostensibly use inspiration in my games. Um, the way I, I've been running it in our current games is that um, inspiration is something that as if the player characters recognize that they've done something that follows their um, uh, oh crap from their background, their ideals, their um, uh, 
the the things that Kyle was mentioning from the backgrounds that you roll on to see your your character's beliefs and stuff like that. I, in my games, if you if you do something like that, you can let the game master know, hey, I did this thing, and then I'll say, okay, you've got your experience, your inspiration point. That's the idea behind it, anyway. Um, I know we're getting a little long, but I'd like to bring up one more topic, and this is the last one that I have. Um, how do you guys feel about how the uh, classes are balanced against each other in 5th edition? Would you say that there's a best class? I don't know if I would say there is a best class, but there are definitely classes that every group should have. Like, if you don't have the four core classes that have existed in D&D forever, you don't have a melee tank, you don't have a healer, you don't have a... Uh, a sneaky shooty type person you don't have a uh a like dropping aoes and massive uh spell casting class you're gonna you're gonna have a harder time i don't know if there are any truly garbage classes as well on the flip side of that you ever played a ranger or a monk playing playing one right now have not played a monk the the ranger is so bad the Wizards of the Coast released a revised ranger that's supposed to be like the replacement ranger because the one in the player's handbook is just garbage and they have data on it because they've looked at what people have built. Like, I think Wizards is using D&D Beyond as, uh, you know, basically a data mining for how people actually play D&D. And yeah, ranger is pretty universally considered trash and the the monk has been for every edition i've ever seen it in however i'm playing a revised ranger in a game and it's good i i feel like it's a a solid class i don't think it's overpowered um but you can really make an effective ranger with the 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 new features or the revised features for the ranger yeah, I'm I'm playing the revised ranger in my sat yeah my Saturday game as well. Um, I'm I'm enjoying it so far, but I've only played like three class three sessions so far. If I was constructing that group, and I agree with you, Clayton, that those four traditional roles are essential still, and I'm fine with that. But if I was you know doing interviews for who the tank is going to be um, in previous editions, especially third, I would have wanted a fighter in that role not in fifth edition i would 100 (laughs) percent i got it in there uh go with the paladin i think the paladin is head and shoulders above every other martial class in fifth edition yeah the paladin has i'm like i played a paladin in kyle's wanderers game um i could deal damage like nobody else like if i wanted to i could out damage the rogue like, if I wanted to blow through my spells as quickly as possible, which is what I did in that final fight, I can take out pretty much anything that is within several levels, or within several uh, difficulty levels of my class. I'm, I pretty much soloed the, um, the main boss in our final fight because I was just able to unleash holy hell upon that demon. Yeah, and it's, it's not like you're, you're even just like a glass cannon or anything either because you've got crazy good hit points. You've got probably the highest armor class you can get. I mean, you see what I'm doing with that Warforged in your game, Clayton. I'm fucking untouchable. 
And on top of that, you've got not only cure wounds and whatever else, but you've got your own reservoir of lay on hands that you can drop whenever you want. Like, what else would you want out of a class? The Paladin is fucking OP as shit. There's nothing that's missing. Well, we've we've definitely not gone over half of the points that I have, but we are running a bit long, and uh, I don't want to go too long on this episode. Are you guys comfortable with uh, wrapping it up here? Sure. Sorry for hogging it. I was just talking. I've got, I think, a, a, a small elaboration on my hamburger analogy as, as my final point. I'll, I'll bring it back around. Um, I go to Applebee's. I expect a hamburger. I know what I'm getting. I'm going to order it medium, and they're going to give it to me medium well. It's, all, it's never going to have any pink in the middle. I'm going to ask for no sauces. They're always going to put on their, their crazy special mixture. Doesn't matter. The veggies are there. They're not crisp. They're not fresh, but, you know, I'm definitely not going to get E. coli or salmonella or something. I'm going to have a burger experience. I'm going to have a time. In any small town in America, I want a hamburger, I can go to an Applebee's. I don't have to go to, you know, some 60-year running little hole-in-the-wall burger joint. Uh, but that said, I typically prefer something that would be featured on Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, (laughs) But that Applebee's burger, you know, it's there. It's always there for me. Waiting around the corner. Somebody to suggest, hey, let's play D&D 5th edition. And I want to just reiterate that, like like I said at the top of this episode, 5th edition D&D is my favorite edition of D&D. If I'm going to play D&D, that's what I'm going to play. Um, And I'm currently playing four games of it in a week so there's definitely something about it that i like um it's it is a good system um i don't really play it for the mechanics i played this game because it's what's available and i can make a character uh whose personality is whatever i want the mechanics are not going to get in the way of that yeah well said i agree it'll do until sixth edition comes out i hope they listen to people and upgrade but yeah, it'll do for now. So do you guys have anything for geek things? I do. I mean, go ahead. Um, I just want to just, uh, if we could have a moment of silence for uh, the passing of Grant Imahara um, from Mythbusters, had an aneurysm this past week, uh, just dropped dead. Um, I loved him on Mythbusters. Um, world is going to be a little bit sadder because he's not in it. Holy shit, I didn't even know this. Yeah, and apparently I I just learned this. Um, the uh, the woman who replaced uh, Carrie when she was on maternity leave, uh, Jesse Combs, she died last year. Um, but she went in out a fucking badass way. She was breaking the women's world record for um, land speed. On uh, I don't remember where exactly what was, but she was uh, driving a rocket car that she built. Whoa! What a way to go. You know, I don't think I have any. No, I have one. Uh, check out Seagy's uh, lactose-free yogurt. It's really good. Tastes like regular yogurt. But if you're <laughs> mildly lactose intolerant like I am, or worse, S-I-G-G-I is the company. And uh, I just learned about it. And it's outstanding. There's my, there's my geek thing. Nice. Plus one yogurt. My geek thing is a YouTube channel. I don't know if we brought this up 
on on the podcast before, but I recently discovered it and have been enjoying it. Um, guy's name is Tulak the Barbarian, and he's got this crazy long series where he just takes a character from fiction and shows you how to stat it out as the D&D 5th edition character. Um, to be sure on the name, I just googled it, and the top three that popped up were How to Play Doomsday from DC Comics, the guy who killed Superman, How to Play Mace Windu, and How to Play Stitch from Lilo and Stitch. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's done all three of the main characters from um, from the Castlevania Netflix series, shitload of Star Wars characters, like all kinds of stuff. I've, I've watched a ton of them, so check it out. Tulak the Barbarian. All right, guys. What do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? All right. A hundred dice. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us for a hundred episodes. If any of you people out there have listened to all of them, I'm I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> Here's to a hundred more. Here's to that. Um, I remember back, Jordan, whenever I very first pitched this idea to you, I said, um, you asked me what I would consider to be a success. Do you remember the number of episodes I said I would consider this to be a success if we reached? No. Wasn't it like 60-something? It was 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> we have 10x success. Because 90% of podcasts fail before or end before episode 10. So that's why I had 10 as my uh, margin or my uh, metric for success. Wow, we crushed it. Fuck yeah, guys. <laughs> Hey, if you really have been listening, um, send us some questions right in. Let us know what you'd like to hear. I'm curious. And yeah, really, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. And that's not a plea because we are running out of topics. Um, I have a uh, Google Doc that has a master list of all the topics, and the topics list grows faster than what we produce episodes. Um, I want to say that right now the episode list is at like 180 topic ideas that i would like to talk about at some point nice this has been a production of alien familiar media you can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com you can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com this production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.